This is week two of a great cloud of witnesses, learning from believers in the early church. If you were with us last week, we were talking about Irenaeus, learning about Irenaeus' life, about um, who he was, what he wrote, why he's important to us today. Um, and tonight we're going to be talking about two women from the early church, um, late 2nd century, early 3rd century. They passed away, Perpetua and Felicity. So we're going to be talking about them but before we get going, I just wanted to mention a resource that is free. And uh, if you nerd out on this stuff like I do, take advantage of this. This is the Christian Classics Ethereal Library, ccel.org. Um, Jerry, I believe this is through Calvin, where Jerry goes to school. And so it's a wonderful place to go and browse. I kind of showed, showed you on these slides how I got to the text that I'm looking at for tonight. So you go up, and I, I looked at authors, Philip Schaff was a uh, church historian in the 19th century, and he wrote or edited two massive series of books, the Anti-Nicene Fathers and the Post-Nicene Fathers. Anti-Nicene means the fathers that came before Nicaea, post-Nicene, after Nicaea. Um, but tonight, the stuff that we're going to be looking at, we're going to be looking at a lot of this text about Perpetua and Felicity, is coming from volume three of that. And so you can click on that. The entire volume is there. It's not the most attractive presentation, but you have free access to like thousands of Christian resources from the past on CCEL. So I don't even think you have to make an account, but the accounts are free. Um, don't hack my account by seeing my, uh, my sign-in up there. But, uh, but I just wanted to mention that to you as a resource because there is a lot on there, a lot of wonderful stuff on there. You can search by the title of the book, by the by the author of the book, etc. But um, we're going to be looking um, at a selection from the third volume of the Anti-Nicene Fathers. And um, I'll explain why it's in there. Um, but as we did last week, we're going to start uh, by reciting the Apostles' Creed together. So I invite you to read along. Um, this has been recited in the church for millennia. And um, this is something that Christians everywhere hold to, um, common statement of our faith. So I invite you to, uh, to say this along with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and a life everlasting. Amen. As we recite a creed like that, um, you can imagine how many millions of believers in the history of the church have recited that creed and said, this is who we are as Christians. This is what we believe in a lot of different languages, uh, in a lot of different periods of time, in a lot of different places in the world. But believers are reciting this creed to commonly affirm this is what we hold to as the teaching of Scripture. Let me pray for us and we'll dive into our subject for tonight. God, we thank you for the community of faith that you've provided for us. Certainly, we thank you for the community of faith that we have here at Gulf Coast. We also thank you for the broader community of faith that we have as we join with believers all over the world. And in a kind of a mysterious way that we join in with all believers who have ever lived. 
that we are a part of one body with them as well. We thank you for that church. We thank you that we're a part of it. We thank you that there is much to learn from brothers and sisters who have gone before us and lived in different places and spoken different languages and experienced different things. They have much to instruct us in. And so I ask as we look at uh, the lives, really more properly as we look at the deaths of two beloved young women in your church, Perpetua and Felicity, we ask that you would instruct us from their lives and from their deaths. And uh, we ask that you would soften our hearts, open our minds, and that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit as we study the lives of those who have gone before us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I I spent a little bit more time answering the question, why study church history? But I feel like with the neglect of church history and really history in general that's present in our society, uh, I should probably continue to try to make this case that what has happened before us in the church matters. And happened to be reading a book this week uh, for one of my classes, and uh, as the Lord does, providentially, there's a few passages from this book um, that comes to bear on what we're learning tonight. And so uh, it's actually a book about Christian funerals, believe it or not, but uh, there's this one passage, the book is, is Thomas Long, it's called Accompany Them with Singing, and it's answering, uh, I think in a really cool way, why study church history. And this is what Long says in this passage of his book. In her book, The Cloister Walk, Kathleen Morris tells of her unusual religious quest. She's a married Protestant woman. She decided to become, for a spell, a resident of a Benedictine monastery in Minnesota. So let that sink in. What's happening here? This married Protestant woman is going to a Catholic monastery. One day, after she'd been at the monastery for a while, the monk who was training her in spiritual discipline said something odd. It's time for you to meet the rest of the community. He then took her out to the cemetery. As we passed each grave, Nora said, the monk told me stories about the deceased. Having been at the monastery over 60 years, he'd known nearly everyone buried there. Later, a friend of the monastery, another Protestant, told her monastic funerals always blur the line between this world and the next. One feels that the present is just a moment in the continuum between his community and the community of the saints. Norris realized that in such funerals, the rest of the community turns out to be very large indeed. As we study church history, we get to meet the rest of our community. We get to meet these men and women who have gone before us, who have passed into the eternal state with the Lord. And as it turns out, as we're learning about these men and women, the rest of the community is very large indeed. There are lots of Christians who have gone before us. We're not the first people to walk this path. Thanks be to God that we're not. We have lots of things to learn from these men and women who have walked before us. And tonight we're going to be doing that by learning from two of our sisters in the faith, Perpetua and Felicity. This, again, I don't think this is super accurate, but this is just an artistic rendition of Perpetua and Felicity. And these were women who, as we're going to learn, were faithful unto death. And we have a lot to learn from Perpetua and Felicity, both about how they lived and about how they died. So we're going to be talking about them tonight And I want to warn you up front, it's going to be a little bit different than last week. Last week, we kind of gave this 
overview of Irenaeus' life, and then we looked at his two big writings, what's interesting about Perpetua and Felicity is we know like next to nothing about them except for one text that we have about how they died. And so we're not going to have a huge biography of these women. Um, and what we're going to do instead is we're actually going to read together some of what's written about these women and how they died and learn some from this text um, that, interestingly enough, was written, we think, by Perpetua. So she's giving a firsthand account of her own martyrdom. And so uh, lots to learn from that. But just real quickly, we went over this in more in depth last week, but just a snapshot of the first few Christian centuries. Uh, obviously, kind of as a starting point, you've got the death and resurrection of Jesus, A.D. 33. You've got the death of the Apostle John, the close of the age of the apostles. And so you kind of see this as the New Testament era is coming to a close. The apostles are dead. And what's kind of cool is we're looking at the real early church with uh, Irenaeus and Perpetua and Felicity. We talked about last week that uh, Irenaeus was discipled by someone who was discipled by the Apostle John. So the Apostle John was Irenaeus' grandfather in the faith. If you can imagine being that close to the apostles of Jesus, that's pretty mind-blowing. And we're not too far from that. Uh, with what we're looking at today, either. Um, we've got the martyrdom of Polycarp. That's who discipled Irenaeus. He's martyred in Smyrna, uh, modern-day Turkey, in AD 156. We have persecution under the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius in AD 177. Uh, we saw that uh, the bishop of Lyon before Irenaeus was actually killed in that persecution. That's how Irenaeus got his job. Uh, his predecessor died. And then A.D. 202, persecution under Septimius Severus. And that's when we think Irenaeus died as well. And what's interesting is Perpetua and Felicity in a very different part of the Roman Empire died in this same persecution. We're going to see how widespread this was that Christians were being killed under the emperor Septimius Severus. Um, And then later on, we're going to cover these more in future weeks, but more persecution under Decius. Then you've got the Edict of Milan, A.D. 313 under Emperor Constantine. This is Constantine granting full religious tolerance to Christianity. The Council of Nicaea, um, the Nicene Creed, AD 325, and that's what we're talking about. Anti-Nicene is before 325. Post-Nicene is after 325. You've got the Council of Constantinople in 381. And then for the purposes of this class, we're going to be ending up in a couple of weeks. You've got AD 410, the sacking of Rome by the Visigoths, and it prompts uh, St. Augustine to write The City of God one of his more famous works. Just want to mention Pliny and Trajan um, up front. These were kind of the guys early in the second century. Um, We don't know them for good reasons, really, as Christians. These were the guys that kind of set the baseline of what persecution could look like. And essentially what they said is, hey, don't hunt Christians down, but if it becomes really apparent that somebody's a Christian and they're kind of being obnoxious about it and they won't recant, okay, then you can put them to death. And this was kind of the prevailing notion in the first couple of centuries until the Edict of Milan. So for about 200 years, uh, what Pliny and Trajan put into effect was common throughout the Roman Empire. And so there wasn't tolerance of Christianity. There were some people that kind of turned a blind eye. And there were some instances of people being much more active in their persecution. And one of those was Septimius Severus. He's got a nice head of hair. He's got a nice beard. He was also really, really mean to Christians, and he died in 211, um, but he was one of the emperors who decided, I'm not okay with with what Pliny and Trajan put into place. Uh, I actually want to be a little bit more intense about persecuting these Christians, and um, it's under Septimius Severus that, uh, that we find out that Perpetua and Felicity died. 
Um, we're going to look at a map in just a second, and, and we'll find out that it was in Carthage in northern Africa that Perpetua and Felicity died. But I want to read this quote from Huso Gonzalez, a church historian. And it says, The year 202, when the Edict of Septimius Severus, this guy, was issued, it was a landmark in the history of persecutions. This is not a good landmark. This is a bad landmark. One tradition affirms that Irenaeus suffered martyrdom in that year. We looked at that last week. It was also at that time that a group of Christian, including Origen's father, Origen's one of the most important early theologians in the church, Origen's father were killed in Alexandria. Since Clement was a famous Christian teacher in that city, and since the imperial edict was particularly directed against those who sought new converts, he had to seek refuge in areas where he was less known. What I want us to see here, if you don't have a great grasp of ancient geography, that's okay. I've put a map up here for you. It's a rough sketch of... Uh, of the Roman Empire in the first and second century. And so last week we looked at Irenaeus up in Lyon, modern-day France, ancient Gaul. And Irenaeus is put to death under Septimius Severus in his policies all the way up in France. But we've also heard about Origen's father being put to death down here in Alexandria, in Egypt, kind of the far reaches of the Roman Empire from one another. And we're also going to be looking tonight at Perpetua and Felicity. Primarily, they're in northern Africa, in Carthage. So you can see how widespread this persecution was. Not located in one place, but this was everywhere. Christians are being hunted down and put to death for their faith. And we're going to see Perpetua and Felicity's response to that. But just to put a little bit of flesh and bones on Carthage in the late 2nd century, early 3rd century. This comes from Brian Litfin's book, Getting to Know the Church Fathers. Just a quick passage about Carthage. By Perpetua's day, Roman Carthage was a thriving cosmopolitan city with a hilltop forum full of temples, a large amphitheater, a circus for chariot racing, two theaters, and many bathhouses. Its houses and countryside villas were adorned with fountains and mosaics that spoke of the city's affluence. The fertile area quickly became the breadbasket of Rome. Large ships laden with African wheat often made the three-day sail from Carthage's circular harbor to the imperial capital. Thus, we can imagine Perpetua would have been raised in a culture of wealth and sophistication. Devotion to the pagan gods and the Roman way of life were ingrained in her from birth. This, makes, this fact makes the Christian devotion she displayed in the final weeks of her life even more profound. We're going to see in just a minute that Perpetua was high-born in the city of Carthage. So you've got this prominent city at this period of time. It's actually the second most important city in the Roman Empire. It's wealthy. They're exporting wheat across the Mediterranean Sea to Rome. And Perpetua is from a pretty prominent family in Carthage. She's got things going for her at this period of time. Um, but we're going to move now to the passages that we have in the Anti-Nicene Fathers. And they actually put this under. Here's another picture of Perpetua and Felicity died in 202. Um, But we're going to move to reading some passages about Perpetua and Felicity and what they underwent. And so I want you as best as you can to focus in. For the sake of the recording, I'm going to be reading most of this. Um, But I want you to focus in on what's being talked about. And we're going to pause after each of these passages and discuss a little bit of what's going on here. But the first thing that we get in this writing that we actually think was written by Perpetua, collected probably by Tertullian, another early Christian, Um, The first thing that we get is a brief description of this group of Christians who's going to be martyred 
And so we see the young catechumens, these are young believers, Revocatus and his fellow servant Felicitas, that's Felicity, Saturninus and Secundulus were apprehended. And among them also was Vivia Perpetua, respectably born, liberally educated, a married matron, having a father and mother and two brothers, one of whom, like herself, was a catechumen, a young Christian, and a son, an infant at the breast. So she's a young mom. She herself was about 22 years of age. From this point onwards, she shall herself narrate the whole course of her martyrdom as she left it described by her own hand and with her own mind. So this was a later editor came in, probably Tertullian, who's writing this. We've got this group of young Christians who are captured for being believers in Jesus Christ. A lot of times catechumens hadn't even been baptized yet. So you can imagine how early on in their Christian walk this was for them. We don't know Perpetua's full life story. She almost appears out of nowhere. Litvin describes her as like a shooting star on her way to martyrdom. We don't know much about this young woman, but we get this description here of a young mom, respectably born, liberally educated, and it's her who is apprehended and put in jail for her faith. Something we don't really have time to explore tonight is throughout this writing, and, and keep in mind this is Perpetua narrating firsthand what's happening her father comes to her on numerous occasions and pleads with her to recant. He says, think about your family. Think about how well off you are. Think about your baby. Don't you want to turn away from this kind of faith that you have? Is it really that important to you? We don't have time to really go into that. Um, Litvin says this about the interaction between her and her father. When Perpetua steadfastly resisted her father, even though he tore out his beard, so think about how Intensely, he's pleading with Perpetua. He's tearing out his beard, threw himself on the ground before her, and cursed his old age and uttered such words as might move all creation. We're witnessing a scene of extraordinary Christian renunciation by this noble daughter. She's got her father pleading with her, don't do this, and she doesn't recant. It's pretty remarkable. We also don't have a lot of time to get into the relationship between Perpetua and Felicity, but it seems as if Felicity might have been Perpetua's slave. Felicity was also pregnant, eight months pregnant, and she's thrown in jail for being a Christian. Now, what's interesting about this account is she's not asking to be let off because she's pregnant. She's praying that she would go into labor early so that she could give her baby to another believer to take care of so that she wouldn't miss out on being martyred with the rest of her brothers and sisters. She didn't want to go through this alone. If she didn't have her baby early, she would have had to have been put to death with criminals. So you've got this really interesting, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, a really interesting different perspective on this than we might think. You've got a father pleading with his daughter and her saying, no, 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 this is my family. I'm going to death with these people, and I'm not turning back. Somebody else can take care of my child. And you've got this young mother who hasn't even give birth, given birth yet. We're going to see that she gives birth in prison hasn't even given birth yet, and she's pleading with the Lord, help me to go into labor early so I can pass off my baby, somebody else can take care of them, so I can be martyred with my brothers and sisters. And so you've got this really interesting view of martyrdom, not necessarily as something to be sought out, but definitely martyrdom, not something to be avoided either. And we're going to be looking at that kind of conflict between the two. But what's really interesting, and kind of why I wrestled whether even to teach on this or not, 
is that a good chunk of Perpetua's account of their martyrdom is taken up in some visions that she has. And I didn't know what I was going to say about these visions because they can be a little bit wonky at times. But the more I read these, they're actually pretty encouraging. And so we're going to read through some of these. Just bear with me. But I want you to key in. Uh, we're not going to go into huge depth with these. I want you to key in on some things that stand out to you. I want you to key in on, is there any biblical language in these visions that's com- that are coming up? And so bear with me as I read these. Keep in mind they're in jail. Perpetua's in jail when this is happening. But this is Perpetua's first vision while she's in jail. And I asked, and this was what was shown me. I saw a golden ladder of marvelous height reaching up even to heaven and very narrow so that persons could only ascend it one by one. And on the sides of the ladder was fixed every kind of iron weapon. There were were swords, lances, hooks, daggers, so that if anyone went up carelessly or not looking upwards, he would be torn to pieces and his flesh would cleave to the iron weapons. A little bit weird so far. Under the ladder itself was crouching, crouching a dragon of wonderful size who lay in wait for those who ascended and frightened them from the ascent. And Saturnus, who is another one of the captives, went up first, who had subsequently delivered himself up freely on our account, not having been present at the time that we were taken prisoners. So you get this little historical aside. Saturnus is with them in prison. He wasn't there when they were captured. He offers himself up freely because he had heard that his friends were in jail. He attained to the top of the ladder, and turned towards me and said to me, Perpetua, I am waiting for you, but be careful that the dragon do not bite you. And I said, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he shall not hurt me. And from under the ladder itself, as if in fear of me, he slowly lifted up his head. And as I trod upon the first step, I trod upon his head. And I went up and I saw an immense extent of garden. And in the midst of the garden, a white-haired man sitting in the dress of a shepherd, of a large stature, milking sheep, and standing around were many thousand white-robed ones. And he raised his head and looked upon me and said to me, Thou art welcome, daughter. And he called me, and from the cheese as he was milking, he gave me, as it were, a little cake, and I received it with folded hands, and I ate it. And all who stood around said, Amen. And at the sound of their voices, I was awakened. So she's awakened from her vision, still tasting the sweetness, which I cannot describe. And look how she concludes this ecstatic vision. I immediately related this to my brother, and we understood that it was to be a passion, meaning I'm going to die. And we ceased henceforth to have any hope in this world. That's the conclusion that she draws from this ecstatic vision of this ladder and this dragon and climbing climbing up to heaven. If you take the time to read through, and and I do encourage you this week, it's a really short selection um, about Perpetua and Felicity, but Perpetua has three visions, and Saturnus has a vision as well that she relates in here. And so my question is kind of a modern Christian that I've read this before and kind of been like, okay, that's great. Uh, I don't know exactly what to do with this. What do we make of these visions? How do we evaluate these? And I want to offer a few suggestions that I was mulling over this week as I was reading these visions. The first thing is, we can't acknowledge that these visions sound a bit foreign to us. Nobody has ever come to me and said, hey, I had this vision. I was kind of put in this trance, and there was this single file ladder going up to heaven with a bunch of weapons on the side and a dragon underneath. Nobody's ever done that to me. So it's, it's okay that this strikes us maybe as a little bit foreign. And so we can test these visions that we have. We don't just have to accept them without qualification because they're put in a a book of early Christian history and say, well, I can't question this. 
it's okay that we look at this and say, hey, can I test this a little bit just to see what's going on here? Even in church history, we can test these things. And Dave was mentioning this in his class on prophecy, but I think very much like what's talked about in 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21, we can do with something like visions, where it talks about, don't despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So as we approach, approach something like this vision and the other visions in this book, we can approach them in this way, that we don't just have to accept them, we can acknowledge, hey, this is a little bit weird maybe, but what should we do with these? How should we test them? The second thing that we should note is there is a biblical flavor to these visions. And that's what I was struck by on reading these a second time. Is if you read that, you're like, man, there's actually like a lot of imagery from like Jacob's Ladder is kind of thrown in there. You've got this dragon that we see in the book of Revelation that's kind of a stand-in for Satan. Then she goes on to describe heaven as like, as like a garden, kind of like the Garden of Eden. In other places that we see the eternal state described in those ways, you've got this biblical language coming through. And then I think what stood out to me the most, you've got this description as she put her foot on the first step of the ladder, she's also stepping on the head of the dragon. Romans 16.20 says, And the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. We're not going to read this one uh, just for the sake of time, but if you look at Saturnus's vision, he's really just kind of saying he's having a vision of Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. It's very similar what he's describing to those passages. And so while it might be a little bit strange for us to hear someone say, I'm having this vision, there's a lot of biblical imagery being shot through in these. Another thing that I want us to note is that these visions encourage biblical thinking among these persecuted believers. And this is what I mean by that. Is in another one of the visions uh, Perpetua has, she says, Then I awoke and perceived that I was not to fight with beasts, but against the devil. Still I knew that the victory was awaiting me. This so far I have completed several days before the exhibition. She's talking about her death. But what passed at the exhibition itself, I will let someone else write. Um, and so it made me think of Ephesians 6, verse 12. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So you see this biblical-type thinking coming out of these visions. It's not kind of some ecstatic, out-there conclusions that are happening here. It's Perpetua saying... I'm realizing, even though we're about to be thrown into this auditorium to fight wild beasts, we're not striving against flesh and blood. We're striving against something else. And that's related to her through these visions. And fourth, we should note that the visions ultimately strengthen these persecuted believers to hold fast their confession of faith and to hold to God's promises of ultimate deliverance. Think about what she says at the end of her first vision. I immediately related this to my brother, and we understood that it was to be a passion. And we ceased henceforth to have any hope in this world. It'd be one story if we saw these visions and they're like, oh, we're going to be released and then we're going to be made like the kings of the Roman Empire and everything's going to be great and we're going to be made super rich and all we have to do is deny Christ and then all these great things are going to be happening to us. If that was what these visions related, rightly we should be very skeptical of what's happening here. 
But really, it's, hey, hold fast to the confession of faith that you have. You're going to be martyred, but there's something better waiting for you. And so really, how I want us to conclude on this is, the supernatural nature of visions should neither prejudice us for or against their validity. We shouldn't immediately say, oh, this is incredible because this person had a vision and I'm just going to believe everything that they said. But on the other hand, we shouldn't say, oh, this person had a vision. That's really weird. I'm not going to believe anything that they say. These visions should probably be judged positively in this instance in light of their compatibility with the biblical message and their encouragement of biblical thinking and action. We see the fruit of these visions We can kind of line it up against Scripture and say, hey, this is maybe a little bit out there for me, but they seem to be sticking pretty close to what the Bible says. They're not saying anything against what Scripture says, but also we see that encourage these believers who are in jail, facing death, to hold fast to their confession and to have hope somewhere else. And just for a few minutes, moving from that, I want to just read through some passages Quickly, because there's, there's a lot more text here, but read through some passages that actually talk about their martyrdom. This wasn't written by Perpetua, obviously. She didn't have something to write on when she's in the amphitheater. Um, but these are other believers who witnessed what took place. And, um, and so I'm going to read through some of these. This first one um, takes place on the day of their martyrdom. Felicity, the slave girl, had recently given birth. She saw this as an answer to prayer that she could go and be martyred with her brothers and sisters in Christ. And so she gave birth and passed off um, her, her newborn child to another believer. And so all of these, Perpetua, Felicity, and their companions are together. But it says this. And I've bolded some things that stood out to me. But The day of their victory shone forth. That's how they're talking about their martyrdom. The day of their victory shone forth. They proceeded from the prison into the amphitheater, as if to an assembly, joyous and of brilliant countenances, if perchance shrinking, it was with joy and not with fear. Perpetua followed with placid look and with step and gait as a matron of Christ, beloved of God, casting down the luster of her eyes from the gaze of all. Moreover, Felicitas, rejoicing that she had been brought safely for, that she had safely brought forth, that she had given birth, so that she might fight with the wild beasts from the blood and from the midwife to the gladiator, to wash after childbirth with a second baptism. So this is how they're viewing their martyrdom. It's impending. And it continues in this way as they enter the amphitheater. They're in front of the government official. When they came within sight of Hilarianus, by gesture and nod, they began to say to him, Thou judgest us, say they, but God will judge thee. At this, the people, exasperated, demanded they should be tormented with scourges as they passed along the rank of the Venatores. And they indeed rejoiced that they should have incurred any one of their Lord's passions. So they're going to be scourged with whips, and they say, hey, so is Jesus. We count ourselves blessed that we could suffer in the same way. But he who had said, ask and ye shall receive, gave to them what they asked, that death which each one of them had wished for. Have you guys ever prayed for your own death? <laughs> what you're wishing for? I've never interpreted asking you shall receive in that way. That's how they're applying it. For when at any time they had been discoursing among themselves about their wish in respect of their martyrdom, Saturninus indeed had professed that he wished that he might be thrown to all the beasts, doubtless that he might wear a more glorious crown. Moreover, for the young women, the devil prepared a very fierce cow, 
provided especially for that purpose, contrary to custom, rivaling their sex also in that of the beasts. And so stripped and clothed with nets, they were led forth. And so we're not going to go into the details of that, but each of the people in this group has their own animal that they face, and none of them die facing the wild beasts, but they actually uh, survive this encounter, including Perpetua and Felicity, who have an encounter with a wild cow. They're naked with nets on them, encountering this wild cow. They're beat up quite a bit, but they don't die. This is Perpetua on the side of the amphitheater. Afterward, causing that catechumen and the brother to approach, she addressed them saying this. So she's talking to another believer who's next to the amphitheater watching them be killed. Stand fast in the faith and love one another, all of you. Be not offended at my sufferings. These are the last words that we have of Perpetua. When the populace called for them into the midst, that as the sword penetrated into their body, they might make their eyes partners in the murder, they rose up of their own accord and transferred themselves whither the people wished. But they first kissed one another, that they might consummate their martyrdom with the kiss of peace. Jerry talked about the kiss of peace this morning. You can imagine how moving this is in the amphitheater, going to their death, passing the kiss of peace. And uh, again, we'll highlight it here. Jerry was talking about social boundaries being broken down. You've got this woman of high birth, Perpetua, and you've got these slaves around her. And they're passing the kiss of peace with one another before they go to their death. The rest, indeed, immovable and in silence, received the, the sword thrust. So they weren't killed by animals. They're killed by the sword. Much more Saturnus, who also had first ascended the ladder and first gave up his spirit, for he also was waiting for Perpetua. You remember that language from before, from her vision, about Saturnus going ahead of her and waiting for her? We see that here. But Perpetua, that she might taste some pain, being pierced between the ribs, cried out loudly, and she herself placed the wavering right hand of the youthful gladiator to her throat. Possibly such a woman could not have been slain unless she herself had willed it, because she was feared by the impure spirit. So we see Perpetua having to kind of steady the hand of the gladiator who's supposed to kill her. He's a little bit nervous about doing this. But we have this admittedly very intense account of these believers being put to death. And what we really have to do is, on the one hand, I mean, we have movies about gladiatorial stuff um, that we're entertained by. Not necessarily going to comment on that, but we have to kind of divorce ourselves from this as a form of entertainment. That's what the people in the amphitheater are watching. And realize that these are brothers and sisters in Christ being led to their death in a very, very painful and public way. But we also have to read this text with a lot of these and nows and weird names and realize these are actual people who lived, who were persecuted for their faith, put in prison, and put to death in a very public and very painful way. So again, I mean, this is an artist's rendition of Perpetua and Felicity. But these are two women, two ancestors of ours in the faith, two very young converts, two very young women, young mothers, who were steadfast and faithful unto death. And um, I think it's, it's important for us to study what happened here and just want to draw a few conclusions from this account that we have of Perpetua and Felicity. Um, we think Tertullian edited this We're not going to be talking about Tertullian in this class, but another early theologian. Um, 
But the account is closed in this way. Obviously, this isn't written by Perpetua. This is after their death. It says this, O most brave and blessed martyrs, O truly called and chosen under the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom whoever magnifies and honors and adores assuredly ought to read these examples. Read these stories, is what he's saying, for the edification of the church, not less than the ancient ones, so that new virtues also may testify, this is what it's testifying to us, that one in the same Holy Spirit is always operating, even until now. And God the Father omnipotent, and His Son Jesus Christ our Lord, whose is the glory and infinite power forever and ever. Amen. So the conclusion, if this is Tertullian who's writing this conclusion, the conclusion he says is, one in the same Holy Spirit is operating in us, that was operating in Perpetua and Felicity and their companions as they walked into that Roman amphitheater to their death. The same Spirit that they have is the same Spirit that we have. St. Pete, Florida in 2018. We shouldn't look back at this period of intense Christian persecution and regular martyrdom as a historical curiosity. We can often do that. This is the period of the martyrs. That's just kind of like what Christian in that time period meant for them. We look back at this and say, this happened to our brothers and sisters, and suffering and persecution is a normal part of the Christian life. So the same Holy Spirit that was active and working in their lives is active and working in our lives. And so can we be strengthened and empowered to face the various sufferings and persecutions that we face? Absolutely, we can. It's the same Holy Spirit that was working in them who works in us. Do you look to the same Holy Spirit to strengthen and encourage you in the midst of the trials of this life? I can guarantee you it wasn't easy for them. Yes, there was a culture that surrounded them, a Christian culture that was encouraging them. Hey, this is really tough. This is difficult. This is hard. But you can face this for the joy set before you. That you're going to a better place. But do you look to that same Holy Spirit to strengthen and encourage you? Another thing, we didn't delve in, into this in great depth, but I think if you read through this, it'd be pretty moving to see Perpetua's father pleading with her to not go to her death. But we see that our loyalty to King Jesus and to our brothers and sisters in Christ is to supersede any other loyalty. Do you think these women didn't have an excuse to recant? They had lots of excuses to recant. Father, this well-born man, pleading with her to not throw away her life. You've got people on the side who are pleading with Felicity. That's another kind of account. Pleading with her. Think about your child. Think about your child. What are you doing? What we see in these women, and obviously this is an extreme example. We'll admit that. But Perpetua prized her relationship with Jesus over her noble birth and her pleading father. Felicity entrusted her newborn baby to a fellow believer and set her face toward martyrdom. We see Perpetua's and Felicity's relationship as sisters in Christ overcome their relationship as servant and mistress. They are all the same in the amphitheater. They're passing the kiss of peace with one another because that social status doesn't matter anymore for God's people. Made me think of Matthew chapter 12, 46 through 50. And kind of puts a new perspective on this passage for us. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who's my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother 
and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Perpetua and Felicity were leaving, in a sense, their human families, but they had another family that they were a part of. They had another loyalty, a higher loyalty, than the things that we typically think of in this world. What else do we learn from Perpetua and Felicity? Well, it could be a renewed emphasis on Ars Moriendi, the art of dying well. We don't talk about this very often in the church. This is another thing that came up in my reading this week, this book on Christian funerals. Thomas Long says this, The best preparation for dying a Christian death is living a Christian life. There have been times in our history when Christians have made this truth explicit by helping each other in the middle of life to marshal the resources of the faith that will be needed at the end of life. In particular, I'm thinking of the Ars Moriendi, the art of dying well, which consisted of, can you, can you imagine a devotional resource like this today? A very practical devotional resource dating from the 15th century that enabled Christians to dress, rehearse the experience of dying. It was conversations that they would have on their deathbed to assure them, I am Jesus's. He has bought me with a price. I'm going to be fine. Conversations that they would have devotionally, preparing them to die well. Now, I'm not suggesting that we have to dress, rehearse our death, as suggested here. And I will tell you that the example given in the book is not as strange as it sounds. It's really just this conversation with yourself, encouraging yourself at death. But I am suggesting that we shouldn't live as if we're never going to die. We get that from our culture. Live as if you're never going to die. As Christians, we live knowing that we will die one day. But we also know that death doesn't have the final word. So we're not suggesting that dying won't be hard or scary or potentially filled with doubt. In fact, we're affirming the opposite. It is hard and scary and it does fill us with doubt. So shouldn't we address that as believers so that we can die well? Are we training each other and training ourselves to face our doubts and fears at death with the truths of the gospel? Do we think about dying well? Apparently they had. And very early in their Christian walk, we're thinking about what does it mean to die well as a believer? Now they're living in a time period where death as a Christian and death early was very much a reality, living under persecution. We should also think about dying well. We also need to remember that as Christians, and this is part of dying well, we look forward to something much better than this life. You see that in the visions that Perpetua was having. She was looking forward to something much better than this life. And to be admitted, Perpetua had a pretty good life in front of her. You know, for the slaves, you might say, hey, they had nothing to look forward to. This kind of makes sense, this martyr complex. They're thinking they can leave this life and go someplace else. And you've got Perpetua money, a family. Reminds me of Hebrews 11, starting in verse 36, talking about Old Testament prophets. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy 
wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. God had something better for these men and women. God had something better for Perpetua and Felicity, and God has something better for us than what we have in this life. And we can be reminded through their lives of this. just want to look forward at the next two weeks. Um, next week we're going to be talking about the Cappadocian Fathers. Great shot of these guys. Basil, Gregory, and Gregory. These are lions of orthodoxy, guys that were around the Council of Constantinople, um, hammering out the details of the doctrine of the Trinity. And we're also going to be talking in two weeks about Augustine, the prodigal who comes home. And so every week, a slightly different emphasis as we look at these early brothers and sisters in Christ. But each of these early brothers and sisters in Christ also have much to learn from them. And so um, I'm going to just pause there, stop there. Um, I would not style myself as an expert on the early church. I do love history. Um, But does anybody have any questions or even just thoughts about what we talked about tonight, about Perpetua and Felicity? Anything come to mind? Jim? Yeah, and uh, we talked a little bit about this last week. Um, As you can imagine, this was taken to varying extremes. Um, Certainly the climate that they lived in, this expectation was heightened for them. Um, There are places in the world today that you you could think of living and say, hey, I guess that's a reality. I could die for my faith. Uh, But really they're living in a cultural climate that said, if the wrong emperor gets on the throne and has something against Christians or he's really passionate about idol worship, we're going to be persecuted in mass. That's just the reality. And so, um, yes, uh, in talking, and we, we saw some of that language in what you're reading tonight, this talk about a second baptism, a baptism of blood. Um, and uh, it goes into, you know, there's a lot of places that could go, but really it goes into this identification with Christ and his sufferings. Then in a very literal way, you were suffering as Christ suffered. And um, there were some unhealthy extremes for that, Christians who were seeking out martyrdom. It seemed like kind of the median line was, you don't seek out persecution, but also if persecution comes your way, you accept, this is what the Lord has for me. And um, even to the point of be encouraged, you're counted worthy to suffer. And um, so, yeah, it did seem, and, and as you'd imagine, I mean, if this is something that you're facing um, I'd imagine if, if we were being persecuted in, in a similar way in our country to this, we'd probably hear a lot of, of discussion about this in our groups and what to expect and what that should look like and um, almost having more of a theology of suffering than, than maybe we do now. Um, is that answering what you're... Okay. Um, other thoughts, questions, comments, Rachel? Mm-hmm. 
I can only offer a guess because what's interesting in this account is we're not even told how they got rounded up in the first place. Um, I would hazard the guess that a lot of what you see is kind of what we're seeing like with the soldier that she kind of has to like encourage to kill her. You can imagine that not everybody's got the stomach for this. The emperor's passing something down. There are going to be some people that are really zealous to carry out these orders. And there's going to be some people that are kind of like, I guess we have to do this. And so that's my kind of guess as to why. Um, But the other thing is, I I don't know that they were ever just like snatching people up. This wasn't like the Red Scare, I don't think. Um, Maybe in certain places it was. Um, where everybody's being accused of being a Christian. Um, I can imagine in different locales it's being carried out differently. And um, even in this instance where they're like, hey, you know, they were doing something blatantly Christian, so we've got them. Um, but we're not just going to say, hey, you're their friend. You're, you're getting killed too. That's my guess, but I don't know. So um, any questions, comments, thoughts? Luke? I'm just struck by how consistent God is. Like you see in the visions and things like that, whereas we're not supposed to obviously take that as scripture, mm-hmm. but how how consistent that is. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, yeah, evaluating it, you can see that God is comforting, God is bringing peace, God is bringing, you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, he's been doing it all through the ages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably the part. I mean, we're we're somewhat familiar with the, like the persecution aspect of it. Like that's kind of how we think of the first couple centuries of the church, and it was that way off and on. But there are kind of sporadic periods of intense persecution. But um, getting a little bit of flavor of um, Christian thinking and and seeing this experience that Perpetua has, um, yeah, it's it's incredible. The Holy Spirit working to encourage her in that way, facing death. So, yeah. Um, anything else? Okay. Thanks. Well, let me let me pray for us, and um, we'll go from there. God, we do thank you that you are active, no less today than you were almost two thousand years ago. We thank you for the lives and the deaths of Perpetua and Felicity and their companions. We ask that we would be challenged and encouraged by the great cloud of witnesses that you've provided for us, that we would realize through accounts like this that the community you've provided for us is much bigger than we often think. We ask that it would shine some light on blind areas that we have in our own Christian experience and our own thinking, our own lives. God, we ask that you would strengthen us to suffer as Christ suffered, not all in the same way, but in our own ways, knowing that it's through suffering that we will gain the inheritance that Christ has given us. So we ask that we would suffer with him, that we would also be raised with him and gain the inheritance that he's given to us. And so um, we thank you for this account that we have. Thank you for these brothers and sisters in Christ that were faithful unto death. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.